Good afternoon. Welcome to Navarra FM here on London's number one radio station. It's the Manchester United, it's the PSG, it's the Barcelona of London Audio Radio. Listening, that's right, it's Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Bastani, at Aaron Bastani on Twitter. Today I'm joined by James Butler, at Pierce Penance. Hi, James. Hi. <laughs> I don't know what any of that means, those comparisons. Happy, be lost on me. Well, Happy New Year. <laughs> Good, I take it. Uh, yeah, well, Resonance is a big deal, right? <laughs> yeah. Resonance yeah, is a yeah, really big deal. Indeed. Premier League. Uh-huh. It's uh it's up there with the best of them. So yeah, how was Winterville? Uh good. Good. Relaxing, replenishing, refreshing, lots of reading. Uh not much else actually. <laughs> because my wrist was broken uh, and it's out of cast for the first time. Um so I've spent most of the winter break just reading and thinking. Uh and uh thinking about how to take on the new year. Great. So you were saved from cooking Christmas lunch? I was, yes. <laughs> Any interesting presents? Uh, none at all, actually. Nothing, nothing interesting at all. Uh, just the standard round of uh, uh, various uh, unhealthy delights uh, from chocolate uh, through to wine. Good. I've still got to give you a Christmas present, actually. <laughs> I wasn't joking when I said I had a gift for you. Uh, I was actually going to bring it today, but given I was almost late, we made this by about 45 seconds. Probably best I didn't go back into the flat to fetch three volumes of Machiavellian 15th century, wow. 16th century Italian. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Sorry, ruined the surprise. Um, so yes, before we carry on with the show, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who came to Navarra Christmas party at Oslo and Hackney on the 22nd. That was great. Uh, we'll be doing more events over the course of this year, both formal and informal. We're looking to do really something... Every month, basically, right? Mm-hmm. So more of that as it happens. I believe we've got our first major event this year. Has it been announced yet? Uh, yeah, the ads up on Facebook. I think the posts up on Facebook. Great. So it's in January, right? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's with Paul Mason. It is indeed. It's in Hackney. It is indeed. We're talking the limits and possibilities of left populism. Yes, yes, indeed. So yeah. very timely. We'll talk about some of that stuff over the course of today's program, I guess. Um, another point in addition to the uh, offline events element, is that we just want to talk briefly, I guess, about some of the plans that we've got for the year ahead. Navara FM, if you're listening, is brought to you by Navara Media, bringing in new media for different politics. That's the politics that confronts racism, patriarchy, homophobia, transphobia, and which understands the political nature and uniquely political solutions to the fundamental questions and crises of our time relating to a capitalism in crisis, an impending climate Armageddon, and a migration crisis, quote-unquote, which really has no end in sight. In the face of all that, we're bringing to the table this year a whole bunch of things, including near-daily podcasts and videos, over 250 original essays, and, as I've already mentioned, events. Not just in London, elsewhere in the UK too. We'll bring you more on that as we can, and I hope many of the people we've engaged with over the course of the last couple of years on social media, we finally get to meet face-to-face, because it's always such a pleasure. If that sounds good to you and you want to contribute to our insurgent agenda, you agree that we can't change much without building our own media, then head down to support.navaramedia.com, make a one-off donation or make an ongoing subscription, a monthly payment to help us do what we do. Uh, We don't mind how much it is. Do what you can afford and what you think is appropriate because we're about creating a media for the many, not the few. If you want to go as 50 quid a week, great. But one or two pound a month is 
more than fine. The proverbial is hitting the fan, so we need as much money, as many resources as we can muster this year. And it's in that spirit we're doing today's show. We'll be looking back at 2016, asking what we got wrong, a whole lot, what we got right, what surprised us, and why and when. Uh, and because we don't just want to mud wrestle in the Pepe-stamped vomit of history, we'll be looking forward to the coming year, asking what might happen and what, most importantly, is up for grabs politically. So, James, we've got, I'm going to say 20 minutes for 2016, because mm-hmm. like I say, we don't really want to dwell in probably what was the worst year for a long time. So it was the year that brought us Corbyn Mark II, Brexit, Trump, the Italian referendum, uh, lots of things that nobody really predicted. Mm. Let's start with Brexit. Did we think we were going to... I mean, we did shows before, before Brexit. Obviously, it was a referendum with a binary vote, right? In or out. So obviously, probability-wise, it's always a high chance of leaving, but we didn't actually think it was going to happen, did we? Uh, well, I mean, I, I did suggest at the beginning of last year, actually, that it was a possibility mm. and that it was quite a possibility. Uh, I certainly said at the beginning of last year that, that the referendum would be a huge deal. Uh, and and it, it's important to remember that in January of last year, people were saying, well, look, you know, people say they don't like the European Union, but ultimately we'll go to the polls, people will vote to remain, people are pretty conservative about these things. It's all going to be fine. And that was the mood that a lot of people went into 2016 with, and that mood <laughs> over the course of 2016 completely evaporated. Uh, and, and, and so one of the key lessons here is a kind of uh, a, a sort of over-reliance uh, on kind of inertia, on political inertia. Uh, and that was really that was really one of the things that that was that was true of political analysis in in 2016. Now, I I, I said at the beginning of the year that it's possible, you know, uh, for plebiscites like those to become a kind of lightning rod for for issues that are kind of almost tangential to the question itself, um, and. That's true. And where I had hoped the issues would, that would animate that public debate were, uh, you know, class, economic structure, inequality, the fault lines that actually emerged, as we know, around migration, kind of popular hatred for the governing class who they saw as bound up in the EU. I don't think it had to be that way. Um, but largely it was because of the strong media feedback loop, loop on migration. And so, you know, here for decades, uh, public debate about the EU has been primed to be about migration. That mm. was always going to be uh, uh, part of... Since part Maastricht, of the, you'd say, right? Yeah, since, yeah, since, yeah, the since 1992. Yeah. Um, and I think equally, though, we have a problem here in, in the weakness of the, the pro-EU or the Remain campaign, which because uh, there are very different reasons that, that kind of right and left like the EU, the only thing they could agree on is that it's technocratic and therefore good and that was always bound to lose um another thing i mean in a lot of ways it kind of made me hugely disappointed in the left not not because people didn't take it seriously but because that you know i felt very much like there was a series of kind of very rehearsed arguments taking place which were almost in kind of hermetic isolation from what was actually going on outside kind of the the sort of sphere of the left itself uh but especially i think it, it it you know and there was very little thinking there um, especially it made me realise what a huge task ahead there is for us. You know, how little it's possible uh, to move the current of opinion, how easy it is to be lulled into a full sense of what kind of popular political attitudes are. Uh, you know, I I thought pretty early on that, it, you, know, uh, you know, I thought pretty early on it was going to be Brexit and then, you know, I, I found myself lulled into a full sense of security by the time of the vote itself. One of the reasons I thought it was the case is my parents, they sort of retired, retired teachers, uh, that kind of, you know, state, state school workers all their life, retired, sort of public sector pension, but, you know, not 
well off, sort of solidly middle class. Uh, they, uh, you know, they said, look, all of our friends are going to vote for Brexit. They've all turned into racists. What's going on? Uh, so there was a very, you know, I felt. And this is where? This is kind of this is uh, now suburban London, sort of South London. Um, and so, so you know, it, and you know, it's unwise to generalise from that kind of anecdote. But it felt like something that wasn't present in popular debate. So, it, you know, the, the real lesson here, though, is, is is how important it is for us to take over and think about mass communicative possibilities, because you know. We have to think and strive for being able to influence these debates, and, and, and unless we can do that, uh, we're, we're really screwed. And you know, we're going to be dealing with Brexit now for a very, very long time, uh, and it's going to be very, very volatile and very, very bumpy. I mean, the thing is, best case scenario for Remain uh, in the week leading up to the the vote itself, they were saying sixty forty Remain, right? You think, well, if you do this three times, then Leave is going to win at least once. Um, that's not like there's a four to five to one ratio of mm. lightliness for Remain. Uh, and it's a similar thing with Trump. We'll talk about that in a second. But that's still a really high probability. And I don't think really that set in for the establishment in particular. Because, like you say, they even convinced us. Yeah. Right? We are always critical and sceptical of everything we're told, yet we swallowed the line from the Tories, from the FT, from the Times, from BBC, like from everybody, because it was said consistently and it was said enough and they looked like they really believed it. Um, so I thought it would be like Indy Ref. I thought it would be maybe a 10% uh, differential for Remain. That didn't transpire. I think for me, I thought Brexit could win. I mean, I was, I was pro-Brexit until about a month before and I still think all the arguments I rehearsed around why I had that position, I still believe all of them to be valid from the terrible nature of EU trade and its relationship to the global south, to what the Eurozone is going to do to a whole bunch of countries and the political overhead of that. I haven't changed my mind on a single thing, um, but I never thought we'd be leaving the EEA. Mm. And this was kind of like, and this is, this is scary. Nobody actually said this until about six weeks before the referendum, where you know, people were saying, well, how could you want to leave the EU? Because then people have to, you know, there won't be open borders, yada, yada, yada. And I said, we'll be staying in the EEA because even Dan Hannan is comparing us to Norway or Switzerland, which is an EFTA, or Iceland, you know, so that was never a possibility until about six weeks out. And the first person I know of who said this was Michael Gove, and he just sort of said it off the cuff. Yeah. And then the likes of Farage and Banks just ran away with it. And that was not, that was not, as I understood it, the right Tory line, the right wing of the Tory party. And by the way, that's the big issue right now that's splitting them. Mm. Fundamentally. But I never thought we'd be leaving uh, over the EEA. And Finally, your point about, we don't want to just talk about Brexit, we want yeah. to talk about Trump, we want to talk about a bunch of other stuff in this opening 20 minutes. But uh, the left having no real answers, I mean, I get a lot of people say to me, oh my God, I can't believe you for Brexit, are you like embarrassed? No, I'm not embarrassed at all. There was no right answer. There was no right answer. There's no, Remain was not right, Leave was not right. If the option is leave and leave the EEA, clearly you have to, clearly you have to vote Remain. Yeah. I think obviously, but in terms of in terms of sorry, in terms of defending, for instance, I shared a Times infographic yesterday, like a meme. Or we can get tariff-free tra trade on oranges and bananas from all these underdeveloped countries in Africa. We already have that. Okay, Europe already benefits from these things massively. Uh, so some of the left arguments for Remain for defending the EU, I just found so at odds with the reality of the organisation and its role as. Uh, 
consolidating European capitalism. Yeah, I mean, and I agree. And, you know, th- there is a reason that there was no easy answer to this, right? And uh, <laughs> there is a reason that I spent a long time writing quite a long... <laughs> Great piece. <laughs> quite Great. a long uh, and considered position on this, because it's difficult. Because, in a sense, like, all of the key questions about the way in which we organise uh, our politics and our economy uh, over the course of the next few decades were at play here. Uh, were at play in the question of the European Union and in how the the vote was conducted and how it uh, was seized on by 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 a sort of by a public that that really hates the governing class, it really really hates them, and that is one of the things that's very very difficult to deal with among all the other issues. Um, but yeah, let, let's move on and let's maybe talk about Trump, right? Because Trump, I didn't expect Trump. I thought I expected it to be very very close. And we've dissected this a lot, so we don't need to dwell on it that long. But, you know, I, I, really, I was absolutely taken in by the number of people who said, look, when it, this, this ma- it's impossible to envision this man in the White House. Um, you know, I'm even laughing now because I'm horrified, right? And laughter is often a reaction to being completely horrified by something. Um, the man isn't even present yet. And we're talking about, you know, what happens if he's impeached, if he starts a war? How can so unpredictable a man govern? And in some quarters, I think it's beginning to dawn that his domestic agenda really might be horrifying. Uh, and I have said, you know, I said for, for, I said prior to the election, I said certainly after it, like, you know, uh, take him seriously. When someone like Trump says that he considers people an enemy, he means it. You know, he, he has been, and I said, you know, I went back and I read pretty much everything uh, Trump had put on paper prior to this uh, election period. So not the whole corpus of interviews and, and speeches during, but from like about uh, 1987 to the present. Did day. you read The Art of the Deal? <laughs> I did read The Art yeah. of the Deal. I also read, read the, the very good uh, unauthorized 1993 mm. biography of The Lost Tycoon, which really fascinating, really, like really unpleasant and uncomfortable reading. Um, but, you know, one of the things that he has been consistent, utterly, utterly consistent from the 80s, he believes America is screwed over by the world. He believes that uh, you know that strong men are more or less a, like a pretty good way to govern a state, uh, and and he believes that ultimately the U.S. is taken advantage of by weaker and smaller countries mm. um, because the U.S. is too generous, and that is going to be his relationship to the world. I mean, in terms, but, sorry, go on. the other thing to say is like we didn't see it coming, and so so this should cause us to think how has this taken place well i remember a few weeks out maybe a month or two out and i said he could win and you said he's not going to win yeah <laughs> and i said well no i mean he won the primary which that's the only reason why i said that mm-hmm. uh you know he won the primary which was so unlikely against uh marco rubio against jeb bush that in itself was Strange, and it betokened a revolt against establishment politics in the US, just as we'd seen mm. with um, with Brexit. I think his foreign policy could be summed up in one line: the US. I think you've said it, but you know, well, you have said it. the The US's problems stem from its allies, not its enemies. Mm. So, uh, which is strange, given the US gives thirty eight billion dollars a year to Israel, has universal health care. Higher life expectancy in the United States, yet the US is giving it thousands of pounds per head, and he hasn't had a problem with that. Um, but that's fundamentally it. He doesn't trust the Europeans. He doesn't trust many Gulf states, quite rightly, actually. Um, and he, but he see, that then seems to flip into a, a sort of converse where he trusts the US's historic enemies. Mm. So he's talking about how Kim Jong un, you know, he's a tough guy. I don't know what you called him explicitly. He can work with the Russians. Uh, he, you know, he 
he so he's like, I respect the Chinese because they've got undervalued again. This is right by the way. This is historically undervalued currency thing. Yeah. Look, this is the thing, right? I was very quickly. I was watching an Alex Jones oh, God. video. <laughs> Why? Because you know, there's a Twitter account I follow. They always do little snapshots of uh, Alex Jones. It's fantastic. Yeah. And Alex Jones was going. You know, he was talking about how they have human organs in sheep. <laughs> They have salmon. <laughs> listen, listen, listen. They have human organs in sheep, people. He's having like a meltdown. And he goes, they are crossbreeding salmon with insects. And hold on. I Googled both of these facts. Guess what? They are. They are. We are. We're gene editing sheep to grow human organs inside mm. of them. And the, the concern with a lot of this stuff is there's a kernel of truth in everything, in everything the likes of Alex Jones and, and Donald Trump say, which... It's interesting. Yeah. It is. Com it's completely unhinged conspiracy yeah. theory, yeah. but it's interesting, and um, that's something to think about in terms of taking okay. these things okay. on. Because yeah. often yeah. these shibboleths have a grain of truth yeah. to them. So where was the left in regards to Trump? Because Clinton, before we carry on, Clinton beat him by almost three million votes in the popular vote. Mm. Yeah. yeah, he got yeah. Um, almost forty-six. I think forty-six yeah. percent. Right. I mean, this is the this is the largest. Of, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. No, nobody's won the popular vote by this much and lost since the eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties. But he lost, as Michael Moore predicted, in the Rust Belt. And people said, "Well, look, this wasn't a, a working class, white working class, or actually a surprising number of Hispanics also voted for Trump. Uh, white working class insurgency." Uh, no, it wasn't. But in the states that mattered because an electoral college system in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, it was seemingly. And one more thing, and I suppose this is sucker. If one in 100 voters in those Rust Belt states vote Clinton rather than Trump, she wins the electoral college. She wins the popular vote by three million. And people go, ah, you know, the trajectory of progressive universalist history with Obama and now Hillary Clinton, the first black president, now the first woman president, continues apace. And that's just one in 100 people in four states. So at the same time, yes, okay, the world is going to insert expletive here, but these things really do, uh, they really do sit on a knife edge. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I agree entirely. And I suppose the, the just... The other thing, and then maybe we can draw some some bigger lessons out of 2016, because that's one of the things I want to do here, is is to say the other thing that I kind of didn't expect this year is I actually didn't think Jeremy Corbyn would still be leader of the opposition mm. by this point, uh, and that has surprised me. I don't want to. Sp we we talk about Corbyn, we talk about Labour a lot, so I don't want to spend too much uh, time. Not as Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, it surprised me. It surprised me that he managed to survive. Mm. It's also surprised me just the sheer incompetence of his enemies. Um, and and this, is, this is maybe one of the things that's most striking about the composition of the Parliamentary Labour Party at the moment, is that they're really the dregs of the, of the, last, uh, of the last sort of, uh, well, really, you know, Brown era and then Miliband era. A lot of the really smart people have gotten out and have retired. You know, and, and certainly the, 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 the cream of the crop of the Blair era, they're all gone. And so, and to say the people who've survived are kind of the the time servers and the people. But even they were pretty stupid, sharp. right? Ed Balls, Burnham, Miliband, James Pennell, yeah. David Miliband. Yeah. They've all gone, and yeah. then like, they yeah. were the cream of the crop, and they weren't that great. Um, David is the only guy that Ed Miliband ever beat in an election. And you've got these, like you say, no, nobody's heard of these people, like Owen Smith. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there is a, there is a new generation, and the, you know, my my sense is that 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 someone is that some of the new crop, someone like Keir Starmer, who is you know uh, mm. in the Corbyn sort of Sir uh, Keir Starmer, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, he is probably the, the the stalking horse, the challenger to watch. I think you know, Umuna is a busted flush. But anyway, I mean, the, so the thing that surprised me is how long he's endured. But the thing that has frustrated me really is the meekness of the project after the victory, the sort of timidity, the sort of lack of ambition really I expected there to be a because it was it, I, I was surprised by how slick and how uh, ambitious the, the the campaign to re-elect him as leader of the Labour Party was so when he's embattled there's obviously like these big things coming out these big ideas and this sort of ambition and then it seems to have fizzled out a bit since then. And so, so this is one of my frustrations with, you know, with, you know, the, the fact that it doesn't ever seem to quite get going. Uh, we'll leave it on this point. I just want yeah. to respond to that quickly. Uh, I remember speaking to a friend and I said, God, imagine if he wins, because it didn't, didn't look likely in the first couple of weeks. Imagine if he wins again and we have a repeat of last year. And we we're like, ha ha, oh, that won't happen. But imagine. And that's precisely what's happened. Um, not as bad because obviously the left has more people, more resources. People have been in there a year; they know what they're doing. More professional, mm. uh, but more or less, more or less, you've had a repeat. And given obviously Brexit and the opportunities that presents, um, you could say arguably it's worse actually than uh, than the aftermath of his first leadership win in um, in 2015. Anyway, anyway. So I want to draw out some lessons maybe, yes. from 2016. Yeah. So, yeah. like, I, I suppose because so we've talked about specific things, but um, I, I, you know, there are a lot of people and a lot of people in sort of the professional political class who are waiting for kind of reality to kick back in, right? Um, uh, who are waiting for sensible centre or kind of political orthodoxy to reassert itself, and I don't think it will. Uh, and one reason it won't is that for some years now, and I think really since we started the project, a repeated question we've asked is how it's possible for the political system to be so unresponsive to the financial crisis and its aftermath. And this has been a puzzle for us because outside of some major demonstrations, protests, uh, some protest movements, the conduct of politics in most of the world and certainly in the United Kingdom has remained kind of same old, same old. And this year that changed, really, really changed. Uh, and that brings all sorts of interesting questions about the lag time on political change and how things can carry on zombie-like. Uh, and maybe sort of the, the the bigger one for us to think about in 2016 specifically is why it is that now the cookie has finally crumbled, why it's crumbled mostly to the right rather than to the left. And we can think about that a bit in terms of what that means in 2017, um, but I don't have a, a good answer to it. But some kind of specific things that have happened in the past year, and all of these are, especially I think in, in, in some sense at work uh, in Brexit, uh, is we saw, I think, really the beginning of the end of the world order of the last 35 to 40 years, perhaps even in larger terms, sort of post-1945. But, but certainly in terms of popular trust in international institutions, political, military, financial, talking here sort of uh, UN, because the UN's ability to mediate global conflicts is uh, an all-time low. It's never been particularly strong, but in terms of Syria, it's just disastrous. But NATO, the IMF, the EU... And while that's happening on macro level, we also see how rapidly other institutions that we thought were kind of secure, 
uh, and unalterable one day and suddenly very rickety the next. And that's partly the consequence of the financial crisis, I think. Uh, but because of that kind of ferment, we see the zone of what's acceptable in politics widen as the old certainties evaporate. And that's, again, a longer process than 2016, of course, not just in Corbyn's election in late sort of 2015, but going much further back as well. This year, the story has been the return of the fascists in their new guise as the alt-right, slightly different politics, maybe different configuration of, of it. And we've explored how that's happened on the show recently, but the implications of what that means are still quite hard to, to compass. We're going to find out. Uh, relatedly, I think this is the year where things have felt really, really 21st century. And I think for, for me, the US election is the kind of first election where I felt it was really constituted and led by its internet dimensions. And I don't mean here just that the internet played a part. <clears throat> the internet was obviously a very important part of previous elections. It's an important part of the Obama campaign. But it was used there as a kind of extension of offline activities and get out the vote. Here at various points, the election would have just been completely different in content, in policy, tone perhaps even outcome and candidates in a pre-digital environment. And how much of that is to do with the <coughs> candidates themselves, to a degree, but, but not entirely, I think. And there's a, it's a really interesting phenomenon. And lastly for me, and the thing I, I, you know, I, I maybe don't know what to do with analytically, and maybe I don't know where it will go politically, is the kind of polling doldrums, floundering of kind of left social democratic parties across Europe, sort of centre-left. Now... I think there are some answers to this that come out of the, these kind of you know, problems that we've seen in the past year. Part of that's the traditional coalition which puts such parties in power is under serious strain. Um, part is reaping the long-term consequences of simply becoming too cosy with state institutions. This is a thing I've talked about on this show before, a great book by Peter Mayer, uh, uh, Ruling the Void, um, uh, which outlines this kind of thesis. Uh, but I think part of it is... This, and it's maybe the kind of bigger animating problem with a lot of these things. What do conventional, nationally bounded political economic organisations do in a world that's governed by capitalist economic organisation on the international scale of, of such complexity and sophistication that kind of autarky, i.e. kind of self-sufficiency, isolation from the international economic system, uh, and its variants are kind of impossible, or at least very, very self-destructive, in, in which the relationship between states and markets has become reversed. Uh, in concrete terms, incidentally, the, this question is also, what do you do about Port Talbot? That's, that's the question that's at play there. And so I think that, that, that to me, is, is kind of one of the animating questions of, of a lot of these issues globally, and we don't have an answer to them yet. <clears throat> yeah, I mean... To respond to a few of those points, there was a really brilliant statistic I heard, I think it was in the Ezra Klein podcast, and Trump gets, the spirit of the numbers is correct, the numbers haven't, haven't got them in front of me, but Trump gets something like 65% of white men, okay? Which is the exact same number as, I maybe I've said this on the show actually, and reading the numbers verbatim, Trump gets 65% of white male voters, which is the same as Reagan in 84, okay? Reagan in 84 wins by a landslide... Walter, as I've incorrectly said before, Mondale, Mondale <laughs> gets one state. Okay, so they win this by the same proportion amongst white men. The difference is that with Reagan in 84, that's the big, one of the biggest ever wins the Republican Party. I think it's the second biggest in the 20th century. I might be wrong. One of the biggest. Trump loses the popular vote by almost 3 million. Okay, so that's the difference. Uh, so I thought that coalition of voters, racists, white people primarily without a college degree, men, 
I thought, and if you look at the numbers, it's not, it shouldn't be enough to win an election in the United States because you've got people of colour, women, university graduates. You're looking at like 65% the Democrats should be aiming at. I still believe that it was his last hurrah. That's not to say that he can't win again because he can, but I do think that that coalition is under threat. Places like Arizona, Texas are more likely to vote Democrat over time. None of it's inevitable. So one of the big questions for me is then, how will this politics cement itself, augment itself? One route is, I think, a coalition with traditional Republicans, traditional conservatives in this part, uh, country, and also self-identifying liberals. And there was a really interesting interview between... Um, it's called the Rubin Report, YouTube, uh, YouTube channel. It's okay, it's interesting to watch. And it's between the hosts, I can't remember his name. I'm saying Jim Rubin, that guy worked uh, for the White House. It's not Jim Rubin. Um, he used to work for The Daily Show, so he has kind of left politics, but he, he, he also buys into the, the left regressive line. Um, he's interviewing Milo Yiannopoulos. And Milo says, I think we share the same politics. And I'll tell you why. So you're looking at really the two ends here of a potential Trump coalition, right? This is fascinating about it. And Milo says, I believe that the new cleavage in politics is between libertarianism and authoritarianism. Uh, by the way, this is replicated to a great deal with Paul Nuttall, the stuff he says, right? Even though he's, like, he's effectively an authoritarian Catholic. Libertarian, he's not libertarian. Um, and he said, that's the big cleavage, which ignores, obviously, the fact that people using food stamps have doubled or in the UK, that wages have fallen by 10%. Clearly, material politics have returned like we'd never thought they could. Nevertheless, Milo is saying that that's the big cleavage and that you have to decide which side you're on. And so on issues like free speech, on I don't think this can scale in the UK like it has in the US, but I think it could give Trump a second term. And you know what? We could be wrong about it not working in the UK as well. For instance, Europe has been a signifier for many of these same identitarian issues, okay? Mm -hmm. Overly large state, bureaucracy, authoritarian state, don't tell me what to do, don't tread on me. Uh, many of those motifs, those memes were repeated, I think, for the first time in a UK electoral context with the Brexit vote. Could that grow? I think it could do. And my concern is that a lot of those liberals buy into an authoritarian, regressive, right-wing politics in a way that we never thought possible because people are saying the coalition will be any coalition that wins, how do centre-left parties pick up again? They, you know, the historic answer would be get liberal voters, get, get the centre ground. Yeah. I just don't think that's going to happen. Mm. And actually, in many contexts, those people are going the other way. Sure. I mean, I, I think related to this, or, or for me, one of the lessons of 2016 is that the coordinates of political calculation have changed domestically and internationally. The reflex assumption for a lot of people on the left for a long time has been that we would operate in the conditions of a tolerant, like repressively tolerant, but still tolerant, uh, neoliberalism, which looks like kind of gay marriage between two investment bankers at the top of the shard or something like that. Uh, and the component of that might be like an increasingly evacuated social democratic <coughs> parties, which might have some success, you know, success here and there in taming uh, the worst uh, effects of capital, which don't broadly think of them themselves as possessing a kind of different vision of society. And actually, my sense is that the, the possibility of that really did end in 2008. But we've just had a kind of zombie form of it continuing on since. Uh, and now it looks like that toleration in particular, which was always contingent, right? It was never universal and it was never universally distributed, is itself under deep question. And the configurations in politics we thought were broadly impossible have taken place. Uh, and, you know, I, as I've said before, I, I think that can still be <laughs> underestimated. People are still waiting for the grown-ups to come back into the room. But the grown-ups have, have 
have have lost the plot. Uh, <laughs> they really have. So before we move on to uh, 2017, yeah, 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 yeah. I've got a question for you. In 2016, what did revolutionaries look like? I mean, there's a very... This can be cliche, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a serious question. And well, I know you don't like cliches, so you're yeah, going to ask I, I don't, I don't like cliches at all. Um, well, so taking revolutionary purely as a neutral term, uh, the revolutionaries look like the hard right uh, in the United States, and they look like... Uh, Probably some of the populist right in Europe as well. Uh, but if you're talking revolutionary as a signifier that has, has, has meant a kind of, you know, the inheritors of a revolutionary socialist politics, revolutionary left politics, I think that's quite an interesting question because the old binary of revolution and reform, while I think it still has things to tell us, has come under real question, like 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 it hasn't for some time. It has been. It was. It was possible for a long time to say, well, look, I don't do any of that kind of reformist stuff. I believe in this kind of thing. But actually, as the kind of configuration of domestic politics has changed a bit, uh, the question of where you stand with relation to organisations like Momentum or organisations like the Labour Party of all things. I never thought I'd be asking this question on air, by the way. Um, you, you know. It, you know. So let's talk about in the past year. Uh, organization outside of the sphere of formal politics. There's been some good organizing, particularly in kind of resistance to the consequence of cuts. Uh, you know, so so people doing active anti-eviction campaigns, you know, standing in front of bailiffs, that kind of thing. That has always gone on. It, it has continued to go on. It's not been as strong as it could have been, perhaps. Um, you have organisations like United Voices of the World, base unions doing kind of direct at the point of kind of economic exploitation organising. Uh, you have really incredible uh, hard left, I guess, but sort of revolutionary organisations, in particular defending the rights of migrants and campaigning to shut down Yars Wood, things like that. Yeah. Uh, that's big. Uh, and, and that's where the kind of extra parliamentary left has really successfully resisted the concern, like the, the very real concerns brigade, you know, uh, uh, of which like those who are inclined to, you know, uh, party politics are, are often sort of tempted by the siren song of, you know, be a bit more racist, get you some votes. Um, but the questions that continue to dog that kind of organising about impact outside of very small frames, about marginality, about institutions, about permanence, about a politics which doesn't require absolute commitment and transformation of your personal life, so utter transformation of the self into a militant. Those questions remain real and have been really, really pressing, I think, this year. Uh, but the questions that that kind of organising poses as well, about co-option, about what your trade-offs are, about complacency, about the relationship in particular between means and ends, that to me remains really, really important. Um, one, of the question, one of the questions for me this year, I think, has been about spectatorship. Uh, about kind of passivity and its relationship to the political. And that's a condition of modernity, right? Like, spectatorship is the quality that people often feel about their own lives, that, that they are passive uh, and unable to act. Uh, and the extra-parliamentary left has often been very, very good uh, at, at trying to break that sense of it being impossible to act. Uh, but, the, but that sense of spectatorship is also present in a lot of those of us who have been around the extra-parliamentary left for a while, about, about the relationship to formal politics or politics as normal, in which, so, the sense is that you can view 
politics is normal, so Westminster, but also, you know, just voting or things like that. Uh, your critique of it always has to be one of kind of disenchantment, rejection, demystification, anti-mediation. So that politics as normal is actually a kind of great con, something that supports exploitation and necessarily predetermines all action taken within its space uh, so as not to upset that central fact of kind of exploitation. Therefore, real political action must necessarily short-circuit in some way, and there's a lot of good in, in that perspective, I think. It's really, really important, really essential. I'm less convinced of its fatalism these days. I am, more, I am quite interested in the way in, in which political space is changing, the way in which the space for political action is changing, the way in which things are perhaps or capable of coming together in, in ways that are unusual. Um, and I think in particular this, this feeling impelled always to regard uh, the, you know, any kind of political action uh, so it's, you know, within the space of conventional politics as always entailing mystification, always entailing uh, a deception, uh, ties one hand behind your back when you're trying to organise beyond people who are ideologically convinced of the same thing as you. Because you immediately have to start in and saying, like, you are deceived. Uh, and that, that is a difficult... Uh, difficult thing. But anyway, this is a particular mode of a larger problem, which is spectatorship. It's, it's very striking to me how people feel uh, you know, passive or, or still unable to act. Uh, uh, and, and in a sense, I mean, I, I, I suppose this is also on a larger level, the question that was at stake in the EU referendum. Uh, which is the, a political economic system which has evolved methods to take economic questions out of the hands of its citizens, out of political control, uh, under the argument they're technical rather than political questions. And so I think that is part of the same thing. Um, so that's perhaps not a very clear answer on who the revolutionaries are in the past year. I think I've given you a clear answer in some way. But there are questions <coughs> for people who really want to utterly transform the current state of things that are quite difficult to answer. Yeah, I, I agree everything you've said there. Um, the beginning of the answer which you gave about the far right, that is cliched, right? But it's also, I think, correct, especially the United States have just won the presidency, for goodness sake, and also Congress. Um, and what I, I almost admire about some of these people, I don't, I don't admire them, they're horrible people, they have terrible politics, it's not good for any Americans' living standards, right? Even white racist living standards would decline, it was the fascist autarky mm. in that country, just F FYI. But what I do admire to an extent is their ambition. Yes. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And you hear people like Richard Spencer, National Policy Institute, sort of Nazi-in-chief, the guy that came up with the term alt-right. He started alternativeright.com ten years, 10 years ago, eight years, I don't know. And they are serious about an ethno-nationalist state. Yeah. Now, clearly that's never going to happen. Okay? It's not ever going to happen. Um, they're serious about it. And if you look at the ambition of the left, the radical left, compare it to that, uh, and it's really wanting. And I'm not castigating people, because they, most people, I'm, I'm talking really about the centre-left in particular here as well, haven't kept up with the fact, like you say, 2008 changed everything. I think this was the year that politically we understood all the stuff we've been saying since this show started in 2011. Actually, a lot of it's correct about how screwed the status quo is yeah. the far right has got that well before the left the sense left and the far left mm. and history as we've said so many times again it sounds cliched Badiou said it even Seamus Milne said it right in his book history's come back 
And I think people don't really realise what that means, mm. you know. And when history comes back, it means that, yes, people are disenchanted with technocratic politics as usual. They're looking for different answers. And people with ambitious, exciting ideas will be the ones that enchant them the most. And in the United States, the right has done that more than we ever thought possible. I'm not saying they're doing it more than the left, because I think Sanders, Bernie Sanders would have had a good shot against Donald Trump. They're doing it more than we thought was possible, let's say even just a year ago. Mm. We've only got 20 minutes left, so we yeah. better crack on to yeah. 2017. <laughs> yeah. Even though it's going to be 20 minutes. That's uh, typical uh, Navarra FM. Um, so, 2017. Uh, more of the same. Can it get worse? We've got elections in France, Germany, the Netherlands, and interestingly for me, Iran. But I guess let's start mm. with Europe. Yeah. Um, mm. Could it be worse than last year? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. It could. Uh, in terms of relationship to Europe, I mean, we're going to have at some point this month the Supreme Court ruling on Brexit. That's going to happen, uh, and that will change. I mean, that will determine some of the things that, that how how Britain relates to Europe and how or when Article Fifty will be triggered. Uh, yeah, the the elections in the Netherlands. Uh, I mean, Geert Wilders is doing very very well. Um, it's it's not you know this is this is a man who who is you know uh, uh, the, the Netherlands already rejected the 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 EU Ukraine association agreement in a referendum last year, and that was one that was driven by much like we saw in our referendum here, not so much about the the agreement itself, but 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 actually concerns about migration, and Wilders' party, the PVV. Anti-immigrant um, is really, really high in the opinion polls. It's been topping them for some time. I don't know whether that. I think that changed a bit recently, and then then it came back. Um, but but yeah. So we might have a sort of uh, uh, prominently and very powerful racist uh, in charge of in charge of the Netherlands. Uh, the French elections are in April and then May, I believe. The first round is in April. That will be uh, probably uh, Le Pen Fillon. Uh, I don't think it's likely that Marine Le Pen will win there, but actually <laughs> that's also, you know, it means that you just have a, a, a reactionary, conservative, homophobe rather than a, an out-and-out fascist, which is, you know, a great, that <laughs> that's the silver lining, right? He's not a fascist. Brilliant. Um, we have also, there are Bulgarian elections at some point this year that will probably see um, the election of, of a relatively conservative, relatively uh, backward-looking, certainly very, very anti-immigrant uh, administration there. Uh, we have probably Italian elections this year. True, sorry, I've got that. Um, probably in June. Um, so the Euro's Ren three Renzi, largest economies will have yeah. elections. Yeah, Renzi says, oh, maybe maybe we'll see ele elections in June, certainly by September. Uh, and that that could, I mean, you know, who knows what will happen with Italian banks this year. I mean, that's one of the things. We've been saying that for like <laughs> I know, nine right? years. Yeah, I, I mean, it's amazing. Know, you think, how's Britain held together? You think, how the hell is Italy held together? <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, it's more screwed than but Greece so, in many ways. But so some, some maybe, so, so, so yeah, I mean, Europe is going to look, and then of course we have the, the German, the German elections in autumn of this year. Prediction? Oh, no, 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 no. I just don't know Germany well enough. Really, I don't. I mean, the, the AFD is doing very, very well. It, mm. it, I think it's third in the polls at the moment. Mm. And what that means probably is that, you know, one of the possibilities is grand coalition government uh, in order to keep them out. Uh, do I think Merkel will win a fourth term? Yes, I think so, probably. Mm. Um, and, and, and I really never thought I would be thankful for... for <laughs> 
Merkel winning a fourth term, but she's one of the few. And it, I mean, the thing about it is, is that it doesn't look like she will necessarily be able to repeat, however blasted and however kind of inadequate her pro uh, migrant position was. It doesn't look like she'll be able to to retain that uh, and retain political support for for. for Qu- quickly on Germany, um, given what happened with Trump, I mean, it's, the thing is. I always think of José Luis Zapatero, the uh, Spanish Social Democratic Party. Mm. Uh, actually, they're called the Socialist Works Party, but they're no relation to the Socialist <laughs> Works Party. Um, they won because of the Madrid train attack. Mm. And I think that if you did have a terrorist attack a week or two out before, this is what worries me, yeah. before the next German election. Because I think many of those uh, AFD voters, Alternative for Deutschland, far-right formation, will go back to the to the Christian Democrats if they think that it could be, which it could be, Social Democratic Party, De Linker and Green Coalition. And I think that would make them go back to the Christian Democrats. But if there is a terrorist attack a week or two before, or if WikiLeaks bring out some stuff about Merkel, who knows, um, then... Yeah. So again, it's one of those things where you might not really know until about a week or two before. My suspicion is the CDU will lead the government because they've got three or four potential coalition yeah. partners. So, anyway. I mean, the, the the other thing here, I suppose, and, and now I've mentioned Merkel, I can bring it up, is that the, the past year was the worst year on record for migrant deaths in the Mediterranean. And Europe has largely stopped caring about it. It doesn't really make headlines anymore. 5,000 people died in the Mediterranean last year. It's going to continue to be the case. It's going to get worse. Hungary has said it's going to build some more sort of barbed wire fences around itself. Uh, that's going to be true in, in a, a number of other states down there. Um, you know, Greece is going to be overwhelmed. The south of Italy is going to be overwhelmed. That could be a very, very dangerous situation for migrants uh, landing there. Uh, this is this is not a crisis that's going away. Uh, and and what is astonishing to me is just how utterly European leaders are unwilling to deal with it. Was 2016 the year that this became quite normal then? Yeah, because it's been going on for a couple yeah. of years now, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, it goes sporadically. Sometimes, you know, uh, there's an effective image of a, a, a of, an, of a child dead, uh, and that provokes a spasm of compassion for a while, but then it sort of fades away again. But really, 2016 was the year when people just sort of largely threw up their hands and said. Phew. Not what, my problem. What can European civil society do? Because it was after, like, says. Well, I mean, this is like the question. Lampedusa, like, like, that tragedy meant that yeah, all of a sudden Italy yeah. did something. What, yeah. what, what can we do to well, make a bigger I mean, effort sort to, of happen? To me, it seems like we, it has to be a two-pronged thing, right? We, we have to hold parties like the Labour Party to account on things like this, right? I mean, I, you know, one of the reasons I was happy to see the election of Jeremy Corbyn as leader as, as leader of the Labour Party is I thought, here is a man who will defend the rights of migrants, who will defend uh, against these kind of barbaric things. And the temptation for the Labour Party will always be not to do that. And I think you have to you have to keep the heat on here. But is there not a I, collective I, action problem? Because we've got all these there, member states. So, and... so, so, yeah, there is a collective action problem, which means I think this is one of those situations where you have to circumvent uh, formal political activity, and we have to be funding uh, organisations that go and and deal directly with this. We have to be, you know, look, we we saw this kind of uh, trial that's been going on in the last few days. This guy in France who is helping people illegally cross the borders. That's something we have to consider. I mean, that <laughs> that is something we have to consider. <clears throat> yeah. uh, and this is, by the way, going to be a problem with Brexit as well, because uh, the the Calais camp will become a negotiating tool for 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 the French. Correct me if I'm wrong. The border legally. 
for Britain was previously in France. Yeah, it's, it, it, it still be... is. No, well, it still is. It's still, it's still governed by the Le Touquet Agreement. But this could no, be up for grabs? It could be up for grabs. And, and Fillon has said that, it, it, you know, he's happy to kind of, you know, uh, uh, punish Britain with with that, but so the thing the thing is like I I think it's quite unlikely, but but it, 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 that that argument will be part of the the negotiations. Anyway, so that is one of the things I just wanted to mention to say that this is a crisis that's ongoing and we must start thinking about ways not only to fund organisations that are doing kind of direct contact work, who are doing kind of search and rescue operations, that is Médecins Sans Frontières, in, in, among other things, um, but, but we must also start thinking about how we act collectively outside of formal politics because it, it's, in, it's stuck in the mud at the moment uh, and <laughs> it's too urgent a crisis to, to wait on political representatives to deal with it. Uh, and, and that... That, that I think is essentially, we can leave that there, I think. I, I just want to also, I think, UK foreign policy in the Middle East, the fact that it's not entirely mm. shaped now by the knock-on effects of a refugee crisis, mm. not just in Syria, by the way, that's just one country, there's Yemen, there's a whole bunch of countries which could become exacerbated over the next 5, 10, 20 years. Yeah. They were talking about going into Syria, about funding the FSA, ISIL, whatever, the, the opposition We'll leave that to one side. The point was there was no conversation about the after effects that would have on refugee flows. And given how hot a topic it is for the right in this country, I found it bizarre that the Conservative Party weren't more eager to say we want a foreign policy that deals with because A, that's needed. B, uh, that would appease their own voters. It doesn't mm. make any sense to me presentationally. And in reality, it's important that they do that. Anyway, that's another issue. Three global political events this yeah. year that I think are going to be really interesting. One is very, very soon. One is the Trump inauguration. Yeah. On, on that day, we will start to see what the priorities of that administration are going to look like. Inaugural speeches not, don't necessarily bear that much resemblance to how people govern in reality, but with Trump, it will be very, very interesting. Second, in April... Turkish constitutional referendum, mm. and that is really important. Mm. This is, and I, you know, this is a, a referendum that looks like it will highly, highly centralise the powers of the presidency. It will probably abolish the post of prime minister. It's, it's, it's still unclear what the amendments will be. Like they, they've been through a constitutional court, I think. Anyway, that's going to be, I think, really, really important, and it could start looking like very, very unpleasant in Turkey for anyone who isn't closely aligned to Erdogan and the AKP. Uh, third thing is in the autumn of this year, uh, the National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and we don't talk very much about China uh, on here. We have done a couple of times in the past, and, but we should cover this this year because this is a five-yearly uh, event. Uh, and it looks like uh, there will be probably some change in how uh, uh, power is traditionally handed over. Or, or the, the, you know, It looks like essentially Xi Jinping is going to stay on and, and that itself is interesting. And... By the time the autumn hits, by the time this hits, there will be more of a sense what the relationship between the United States and China is going to be like. Um, yeah, we don't talk about China enough. We did some great shows a few years ago with Ashok Kumar, which one of them in particular, um, I think, is actually it was a really, really important show. Talking about the secular crisis of global capitalism and how that ties into no next China. Um, if you just go onto the China tag on the Navarra Media website, you can, you can find that Ashok Kumar. It was a podcast. That's true. And I think China, the, the norm for Chinese growth since 2008 really has moved from like 10% to between 8 and I think this year it's going to be 6.5%. Yeah, there are serious domestic problems. Yeah. Here. And actually some people say well, the real figures are probably close to 5%. 
And this is a country which still, I think, is seeing, maybe it's slightly lower now, until about a year or two ago, a couple of years ago, 1.2 million people moving every year from country to city. So you need huge job creation. And they are facing the twin prospect of wages being so high that capital is now relocating to Vietnam, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Pakistan. In the future, Africa, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Tanzania, Kenya, um, and also automation. And we think of automation as being, uh, rep, you know, presenting huge problems for living standards and political stability in the global north. Actually, you know what? I think it'd be even worse in China in the short to medium term. So, yes, I would add one more event, which is, I think, the Iranian presidential election. And I'm not just saying that because I'm half Iranian. Rouhani has been fantastic for the region for uh, Iranian-European, Iranian-American relations. If you think how bad the worst case scenario could have been, Ahmadinejad, whilst Iran was in Syria, the kind of rhetoric that would have surrounded that, uh, the kind of rhetoric that would have surrounded Iranian potential presence in Yemen. Uh, bear in mind there are three or four ongoing proxy wars, really, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, Saudi Arabia, of course, being a key ally of the United States. The concern is that this year, a Revolutionary Guard candidate will win the presidency. I think it's unlikely, uh, and I'm not an Iran scholar. We need to get some more people on here who are. Some great people mm. I've talked to about getting on soon, next couple of months. There's the possibility, apparently, of Qasem Soleimani, who is the head of the Al-Quds force, which is the extraterritorial element of the IRGC. It's a bit like the SAS of the uh, Revolutionary Guard. It's about 10,000 people. It's quite big. And he is being touted as a presidential candidate. And this would be like... Truman or something, right? Mm. Um, it'd be a real synthesis of political and military power. And that would be concerning if the IRGC got their guy into the Iranian presidency. At the same time that Trump's in the White House, that could be strange. If you also have that for, say, four years, whilst you have the decline of Saudi power, Saudi Arabia has huge problems. Again, we'll do that in another show. That's a big, big show. Uh, an ascendant Russia, uh, an increasingly militarized authoritarian Iran is a big deal. Uh, because, again, talking about alliances and what happens next, this kind of global alliance now we're seeing between China, Russia, Iran, a couple of other countries uh, is significant because it could be a genuine counterweight to American global power. I think Syria is the, is the, uh, is the first kind of uh, flickering of that. Anyway, we've got just under 10 minutes left. You're listening to Navarra FM here on Resonance. 104.4 FM. My name's Aramastani. This is the first show of 2017 Navara FM. The show will be up soon on the Navara Media website, navaramedia.com. We're talking about last year, what we got right, what we got wrong, and then the prospects for the next 12 months. We've talked about a whole lot. Um, I suppose you've got here on the notes, and I think it's a nice way to conclude, known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Mm. So... If you could maybe offer a few of yeah, each. Yeah, okay. So I think so. Oh, some major forthcoming problems anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we know that we don't know what Brexit is going to do. We don't know when Theresa May is going to trigger Article 50. She says before April. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Depends on the court case, among other things. Uh, and we know that when it comes to crunch time, I, we don't know how easy she'll find it to hold the Tory parties together. That's... I mean, the Tory party is really good at power. They like power. But there is a huge fault line in it. Uh, we don't know. I mean, I think also uh, new elections are unlikely. 
in the next year. I think that's unlikely. But there, what we also don't know is that there is a psychic kind of affective time bomb here, which is the kind of resentment that sits behind some of the Brexit vote. Just can't be satisfied. It doesn't matter how 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 much it goes. So where that goes is hard to say. But some of the major forthcoming problems, I think, return of the nation, uh, both in some kind of variant of a, a kind of left nationalism as a strategy for gaining power, and in chauvinist nationalisms of the right or kind of very, very heavy racisms. I think this returns to some of those questions I was asking earlier, like what the, the role of the nation state is in the globalised world, maybe one that's chaotically deglobalizing or regionalising. Uh, and so if you look at people's prioritization of things uh, like security in times of kind of global volatility, uh, it suggests that the question of security will become a big argument in politics uh, because partly because the Conservative Party domestically are very cognizant that Labour has a kind of mummy problem on this, that they're seen as kind of soft and not very good at security. Uh, a couple of other things, uh, identity politics, going to be a big, big question for the left in, in the course of the next year, because already people are blaming, you know, the the, the triumph of the right on kind of uh, you know identity politics. SJWs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're being blamed for Trump or for Brexit. And this is a completely <laughs> ludicrous and fatuous way of mm. thinking about things. But there does have to be a conversation about these uh, about the relationship between identity, subjectivity, universality, left politics, and what the goals of a left politics are. And that that has to be that that will be a difficult and quite honest, you know, difficult. <laughs> conversation and that that question i think in the return of the universal in particular and what the universal looks like uh without having without you know the the existence of the kind of uh pseudo universal white worker in, in in the way that has been historically the case that's an interesting question and that's going to be a big question i think in the coming year uh two other things question of state power and institutions what it looks like to the, the purpose and direction of taking power you know, the question of state theory and, and hegemony, how one matters in a sort of bourgeois democratic political state. That that's a big big question. That you know, I, I think in particular here, you know, the question for all across the left is not how one makes it possible that not only are we sometimes to put our body in the way of say bailiffs coming to evict people, but make it possible that no one should live in fear of the bailiff's shadow at the door. That that to me is, is the big question. The answer to that are very difficult actually. And it's going to require, you know, some real uh, bonfire of the orthodoxies, I think. Other thing I would say, I think, in terms of known unknowns, is just the financial system. European banks, uh, underlying structural problem with the euros, it looks like there should be another financial crisis. It could well be, it could well rickety, rickety uh, and go on for, for, for a while, but it looks like there should be another one. Yeah. That's uh, not good, by the way. <laughs> I'm going to talk about two things, I guess, which we haven't really mentioned. First is media. Mm. Um, ad blockers went stratospheric in 2014, 2015, 2016. I think 2015 went up like 96% or something. Um, remarkable. So basically, that means that the only two media companies that work online are Google and Facebook. And actually, even Google's in trouble. Facebook has a closed ecology. Google operates on open internet. So even Google has problems. Um I half expect the Guardian to have a paywall by the end of this year, uh, because if they don't, they're in deep trouble. They've got five to ten years worth of funding left, but it's better to experiment with ten years funding than just keep on losing money without any clue about what you do next. So I'm half expecting a paywall on on a couple of UK papers that don't presently have them. I think the Guardian's the biggest candidate for that. Did an event last year with Russ Bridger where he tacitly accepted he kind of got it wrong. Um... And then something optimistic, something positive. In the UK last year, solar 
produced more energy than coal for about six months, which is really cool. Um, globally, 153 gigawatts of renewable power uh, was installed during the course of 2015. It was about a third more in 2016. Global solar capacity is doubling every two years. The price falls by 20% every time the production of a manufactured commodity doubles. So basically, the price is plummeting. Obviously, when that price point for countries that aren't just incredibly sunny goes below gas, oil, which is happening in the next five years, really, then that's when solar takes off. Mm -hmm. And that's something to be really, really enthused about. Some yeah, good things yeah, are happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me, I, for me, in the next 12 months, a big, and I'm not just saying this because I'm writing a book about it or because I bang on about it all the time, but we really need to think propositionally about synthesizing some of the positives about this stuff. Renewable energy, abundant energy that's almost close to free in some of the poorest countries in the world, sub-Saharan Africa, India, uh, with a different kind of politics, a different view on migration, on borders, and a world beyond work and capitalism. Uh, so yeah, that's my... Shall we end on a positive note? I have something positive to say. Go on. That's, uh, uh, yeah. 2016 shouldn't be the basis for a council of despair. Action is hard. We have been losing this year. And what we're witnessing is in some ways a counter-revolution without a revolution really having preceded it. Um, and their victory has to be a call to a renewed seriousness. But one of the things that should make us optimistic is how much people are talking about politics. Yes, confused, hated, terrified by it, but interested in it. And it feels like all the certainties of the old world are suddenly crumbling. But that should tell us that it's possible, possible, that what we have so long thought of as unalterable facts might be changed. And that won't happen by just sitting back. It's down to us. And I don't mean just us in the studio. Uh, I mean us in general. It won't look like revivalism. It'll be messy. It'll be dangerous. We might fail, but we might win. On that note, James Butler, you've been great. This is the first show of Navarra FM. Happy New Year. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Bye. Navarra FM is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find out more about our work, head to navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media. Media for a different politics.